Welcome to Everything Co-op, bringing you information on how cooperatives can help improve your quality of life. This show is being sponsored by the National Co-op Bank, NCB. The NCB is dedicated to strengthening communities nationwide for the delivery of banking and financial services for the nation's cooperatives, their members, and other socially responsible organizations. For more information on the power of community ownership, visit ncb.coop. That's ncb.coop. Now stay tuned for your host, Vernon Oaks. Good morning, everybody. This is Vernon Oaks coming to you from Silver Springs, Maryland this morning, the Washington, D.C. metropolitan area. It's a beautiful day out here today, particularly after all of the rain that we had last week. This morning, we have Mr. David Thompson on the line from Southern California. Good morning, David. Good morning, Vernon. How are you? I'm great. And yourself? Well, good. Lovely to hear your voice, but I need to remind you I'm in Northern California. Oh, great. Okay. Thank <laughs> you. I have you in L.A. No, 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 no. I, I moved north about 30 years ago. <laughs> okay. Okay. What part of what part of Northern California were it? Davis. Davis, which is a university town near Sacramento. Okay. Fantastic. Right. Okay. Right. I didn't know that. I've always yeah. had you in yeah. Southern well, California. Oh, my God. Well, move me on your map. <laughs> okay. Well, David, I celebrated my 68th birthday yesterday, so I'm well, excited as I can be. Wonderful. Good for you. And this is our second anniversary. We started this program two years ago to celebrate Cooperative Month, which is the month of October. And we've been on for two years. We were only going to do it for a month. And you were on that first week, uh, first month, rather. And we're glad to have you back on again. And today we're going to talk about opportunity, or is it co-opportunity? It could be both. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> what What is co-opportunity? Oh, okay. Well, I'm I'm looking here, uh, Vernon, at um, at the uh, replica of uh, my new book that will be coming out. Um, it's going to be a book launch uh, on October the 18th in uh, Santa Monica, California, and that might be why you think of me being an ally because I spent many years in L.A., but a part of the time that I spent in L.A. was working with a group of other people to start a food co-op. And um, that food co-op is called Co-Opportunity in Santa Monica. It has the largest by square foot sales of any food store in the United States. It has 11,000 members, and it does $25 million a year in a, a very small sort of 8,000 square foot uh, store uh, because Santa Monica is uh, very much an urban environment. But uh, we began it with a dream, and today it is a, a retail phenomena that, um, you know, I'm extremely proud to have been part of birthing it. Forty years, I understand. Yes, it is. Yep. Well, David, um, this is really uh, appropriate. I really like the book that you are writing about the cooperative... The how do you say that? The cooperative? Yeah, the, role, the role of cooperatives in the civil rights movement. Okay. Right. The role of cooperatives in the civil rights movement, and you've taught me more about history than I've learned ever because I'm interested in the civil rights movement, one, because I lived it, and number two, uh, it's about African Americans. And too often, most, at least in my age, there was not much in the history books about African Americans, and it still isn't. This, this whole history, I'm glad you and 
Jessica Gordon Nimrod is bringing that out uh, about this right. history. Right, right. Well, it's um, you know, for me, uh, it's it's an exciting effort to go looking at all of the different things that have gone on and. The way I look at the civil rights movement, I look at it um, in terms of cooperatives as beginning in the 1840s um, with the efforts of Frederick Douglass, who was very, very impacted by um, cooperatives, uh, both in the United Kingdom and the United States, and played a very, very special role for many cooperators in his efforts uh, when he lived in England for two years. And as uh, we talked about on the first show, he was in Rochdale, which is where the, the, the modern cooperative movement began. Uh, Douglas was in Rochdale in 1845, 46, 47, um, during the same period in which the Rochdale pioneers were getting started. So um, I'm, I'm always excited to think about Frederick Douglass's feet walking down Toad Lane, uh, which is likely what had happened. And Toad Lane is in Rochdale. Yes. And you, you right. said that you either have the, the building that he lived in or the building that he studied in? Um, what, I, what I've located, Vernon, um, and it's pretty exciting. I mean, it's exciting for me, is the me. very <laughs> right, <laughs> and the, the very building in Manchester where Frederick Douglass was staying when he got the news that through the efforts of British um, Quakers, led by um, John Bright, who was a, a very key figure in Rochdale and a big supporter of cooperatives, John Bright had come up with one-third of the money needed to buy the freedom of Frederick Douglass. And so sometime in December of 1846, there was Frederick Douglass um, sitting in that building in Manchester. Um, the post came, and in that post was the news that he, as of December the 5th, had become a free man. And he was now able to be able to return to the United States without, you know, the um, the, the fear of, of, you know, being taken back by his masters because he was a slave when he came to England. But on the night that he left Rochdale to sail to the United States as a guest of John Bright, he was, for the first time in his life, a free man. How did he get the other, two, the other two-thirds? How did he get that? Well, that, that came from other Quakers. There were two sisters, the Richardson sisters, who um, were Quakers, and they lived in Newcastle-on-Tyne, which is a, uh, a busy seaport uh, on the northeast coast. Um, they had gone to school with John Bright at a Quaker school, so they were very, very familiar. And uh, they decided that um, they would raise the money, which in those days was 150 pound or $750. And lots of people have different views as to how much that would be mean today, you know. But um, they had sent out a letter to a number of other Quakers. John Bright had immediately written back. Uh, because he was already familiar with, with uh, Frederick Douglass, and Frederick had stayed at his house, um, wrote back, and he put up the first 50 of the 150 that was required. And as soon as he got that, the Richardson sisters says, Frederick Douglass is undoubtedly soon going to be a free man. So he gave 50 pounds, which is like $250 at, in, in 1846. 
Can you give me some idea? Uh, I would like to know, maybe the listeners too. What would that look like in today's dollars? What? <laughs> well, uh, you know, I've been working with a couple of economists to try to sort of figure out what is the most appropriate way of uh, of looking at it. You know, and there's there's different definitions. Um, mm-hmm. But the, the 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 definitions generally come between, um, let us say, twenty to thirty thousand dollars. In today's um, world, well, for math purposes, I'm gonna use the thirty because one third of thirty is ten thousand. That's easy to figure out, right? And so it it would be like John uh, Bright. I started to say John Brown. John Bright. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> put up like ten thousand dollars, and then the Richardson sisters helped to raise the other twenty thousand dollars in today's Correct. dollars, seven fifty dollars in eighteen forty six or hundred or fifty one hundred fifty pounds. You uh. UK pounds. Right. So it's right, a bunch of money. Right. It is. Yeah, no, it was a lot of money. And, there, you know, there are different ways that you could sort of do the math. I think one of the ways would be to uh, look at what, what people earned per week in those days and, therefore, how how much time did it would it take for a normal person to save that kind of money. And I think for a working person, it, it would have been impossible. Uh, but for John Bright, John Bright was, was a very rich um, in those days, um, mill owner who had been very successful, and they had the third biggest mill in Rochdale. So, so he he could he could do that, but most normal people couldn't. So, Frederick Douglass, I'm, this is why I get so excited. Was here in Maryland, <laughs> and I'm sitting in Silver Springs, Maryland, right now. He was right. in Maryland, a slave. Yes, he was. Somehow he got to the UK as a slave. He did. Right. So I right. assume he ran away. I'm sure his master didn't agree that he could go to the U.K., I would right. think. Right, right. Yeah, he ran away to um, – he ran away uh, first to Baltimore and then quickly got himself to New York. And in New York, he was under the uh, under the help of a guy called David Ruggles, a very famous uh, member of the Underground Railroad. And Ruggles got him to Massachusetts, uh, as far away from Baltimore as they could. But in 1845, Douglas published his narrative, uh, which was the story of his beginning. And, and the interesting thing is when that narrative was published in Britain, John Bright wrote the preface to it. <laughs> because, you know, again, they were so, they were so entwined with each other. Mm-hmm. Um, but Douglas's friends at the time said to him that now, because he was known, his name would be, you know, put out as, you know, speaking at a certain place and doing certain things, that the slave master was going to be, you know, sending the warrant for him to be returned because once they knew where he was, it would be easy enough to grab him. And in those days, you know, the law required that slaves be returned to their masters, you know. So, uh, so what happened is a number of uh, of his friends recommended that he go to England, and um, and and off he went, and he stayed there for two years, from 1845 to 1847, partially considering at some points, you know, staying there. Mm-hmm. Um, his his family stayed in the United States, but. Uh, Eventually, um, you know, through the efforts of the Richardson sisters, uh, that took away the cloud that was over his head. Because he came back to America, he would be so well-known, he would be easily grabbed, 
you know, and in 1850, I don't know, you know, Congress passed the fugitive law, and the fugitive law said, you know, any slave anywhere, um, you know, if somebody said that guy's a slave, grab him, and the marshal would have to grab him and send him back, and you know, um, so um, so Douglas would 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 not have would have been less of a a free man because he was so well known. You know, that, that history is interesting, and what makes it also interesting, 1847 is basically 100 years before I was born. I was born in 1947. Ah, right, right, right. Yeah, yeah, it's not so long, is it? No. Right. Not, not long at all, and all of this history. And again, when I went to school, this was, you know, they didn't teach about Frederick Douglass. I didn't heard about Frederick Douglass when I was in college. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And so this, that's why it's I found out why I did not like history, but this is fascinating to me. Particularly, he he left the U.S. as a slave and came back as a freedman. Now, did he earn any of the money when he went around England uh, speaking? I, he I, did. Yeah, he did. He he actually, um, you know, I would say had a a very successful career in England speaking. He spoke quite frequently, um, probably once every two or three days. There's a website uh, in England that shows um, all of the places at which he spoke. And uh, he spoke in Rochdale five different times. And then he spoke at um, a little town in Scotland, which had a very small cooperative society. But many of the members of that society also sponsored the visit of Frederick Douglass to their community. We have to take Uh, our first break, David. Yep. I almost slipped it because I'm so excited sure. about what you're talking okay. about. Okay, we'll get ahead. the news and the weather and the traffic, and then we'll be right back to talk more from hear more from David Thomason on cooperativity and the history of the civil rights movement and cooperatives. We'll be right back. 1450 WOL. Welcome back, everybody. This is Vernon Oaks. We're talking about cooperatives. This is the show is Everything Cooperative, and we have David Thompson on the, on the line with us from Northern California. We're talking about a food co-op in Southern California, and it's called Cooperative. And we're also talking about the book that he's writing about the influence that cooperatives have, or the role that cooperatives have in the civil rights movement. And I say have because I think it still does. Uh, has a wonderful, wonderful history, and it still has a huge influence on what goes on in the U.S. This show has been brought to you by the uh, National Cooperative Bank, and the National Cooperative Bank's goal for having this show is to get more people the knowledge about co-ops that perhaps we could form more. Because co-ops, David, uh, I've come to learn, they're formed when there's a community need, when there's a community problem you form a cooperative to help solve that problem. And we have a lot of problems in different communities here in the U.S. And we'd love for people to come together, three, four, five, ten people come together to form a co-op and solve that particular problem. David, I want to go to the food co-op. Yeah. I want to know more about this history. So It's a long way away from you, though. <laughs> <laughs> but, but, you know, that I had on the show last week a gentleman that works for National Co-op Bank, John Hostlaw. Oh, yes, I know John. Okay. Yeah, wonderful guy. And he was talking about a food co-op in Greensboro, North Carolina. I'm pretty sure it was Greensboro. Yeah, right. There's a new one starting. Renaissance is what right. it's called. Right. Yep. 
And um, the book that you're coming out, I was thinking, I'm sure they would love to have that because they are, they've got the land, they've got some money, they've got, uh, I can't remember if it was 1,000 people or 10,000 people they had signed up. I think it was 1,000 members they've had signed up. But to understand this history of this other food co-op and how they do it, I'm sure, would, would help because they're in the training learning process, which is the fifth principle, education, information. Right. And, you know, the interesting thing is um, I started to write this book about 40 years ago, and I, I wrote little bits and pieces and kept all of the stuff that I had. But because it was the 40th anniversary, I, I wanted to, you know, in essence, make a gift back to the community, to the cooperative that I helped start. And one of the key things I had in my mind is that there is such um, a rage for food cooperatives going on in America today that it, it is even larger than the wave that we had in the 1960s and 70s. And I wanted to write this book in a way that people starting those co-ops today who sit around in the same garages on upturned milk cartons just like we did <laughs> and wonder if it's ever going to happen or why am I spending this kind of time and I wrote the book with very much the intent being that if those people read this book, they would then be comforted by the fact that they are not alone. The idea is a good one. It's not stupid. It's not a dream. It can become a reality. Here's what happens. Here's what you have to go through. But in many ways, I think it's sort of a mental health guidebook for people starting cooperatives today because that's what happened to us at Co-Opportunity. You know, we just couldn't believe what happened when we finally sort of, you know, got all of the gears churning. Mental health guidebook. I like that. Um, <laughs> and, and we talk about the problem in the community. In this community in Greensboro, the, the store went away, when dixie and, it said, and he said it was a, a profitable store, but they closed down, and here you have a food desert in this community that, there's no there, you can't go get fresh vegetables and and fruits and vegetables and stuff like that. So, the people came together and said, "Let's form this this co-op." And John has been working with them on it, uh, and there's a bunch of partners working with from National Co-op Bank is one of those partners. And I would imagine uh, this book would be very 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 helpful. So I'm so glad that you got it out, and I'm I want to get a copy. How can I get a copy? <laughs> well, or two uh, or ten. Yeah, yeah. Well, thank you. Well, um, what I will be doing is, um, well, people can reach me. My uh, my email address is dt. Can I give that on the sure, air? absolutely. Right? Yeah, yeah. Okay, so my email address is d t h o m p c o o p at aol dot com. So d coop at aol dot com, all lowercase. You can contact me that way. But the other way is to, after October the 18th, um, contact Co-Opportunity in Santa Monica. Um, send them an email. Send them a message. Uh, let's see. Audrey Beim is the outreach person uh, for uh, Co-Opportunity. And get in touch with her. And that's where the books will be. That's where they will get sent from. So if anybody wants books, um, go through them. And Because I, I, all I'll be doing if you email me is sending you down to them, you know. So in reading your announcement, uh, you said all of the money that's made from this, where is it going to? Yeah. Well, as, as a part of the 40th an, annual uh, celebrations, Co-Opportunity agreed to put up $5,000 of their own money. 
Um, I agreed to put up $5,000 of my own money, and that $10,000 match will be made to the members and other people who uh, go into co-opportunity. And uh, as that is matched, that $20,000 will go into the cooperative community fund that I've helped start with them. And um, this, uh, this is an ongoing effort to have an endowment for that. The interest will go to nonprofits in co-opportunities community. So is that to help start new co-ops? Um, it can, yeah. May I have some, you know, some of the money can go to starting um, other cooperatives, right? But um, um, uh, what we do with our community funds, there are now um, 45 of them that I have helped start through the United States. A quarter of the money goes to cooperatives. A quarter goes to food and other issues. A quarter goes to social service organizations, and um, a quarter goes to environmental organizations. David, you totally impressed me. <laughs> I'm, I'm wowed. Oh, <laughs> okay. Yeah. You said oh, there are 45 you. of these funds that you've helped to start throughout the U.S. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and you and to make it sound so easy. Uh, how how can one find out where these funds are if they are an environmental company or a social responsible company or they want to start a co-op? And I forgot what the fourth one was. Right, right. Uh, environment. Um, so um, what what these are, Vernon, is that um, we come up with um, – that's the Twin Pines Cooperative Foundation, of which I am president. We come up with a $5,000 match for any food co-op to um, help create a cooperative community fund. Um, your wonderful sponsor, the National Cooperative Bank, um, provides us with a number of those 5,000 matches uh, on an annual basis, and we're very grateful to Chuck Snyder and the bank for doing that. Um, but we get them started, uh, so they start with $10,000, and we help them through different programs to build their funds. The largest fund we have now is the uh, Hanover Community Cooperative Fund, which is uh, at, at around about $400,000 after 20 years. And with the 45 that we have, we have assets of over $2 million. And all of that money is invested in cooperative development organizations. So Twin Pines is the largest single co-op investor in the Cooperative Fund of New England, the uh, New Hampshire Community Loan Fund, on and on and on. And so every dollar that we have goes into leveraging conventional dollars for the development of new cooperatives. Um, so those organizations are the ones that people need to go to if they're starting a cooperative. We ourselves don't lend to anybody, but we are the major investor in all of these cooperative development funds around the country. David, I, I um, met with a group in Baltimore, uh -huh. and they want to start a food co-op and potentially change a public housing into a cooperative housing where people that live there for own it. You don't understand that, but I would right. want to make sure other people do that. You could turn public housing into where the, the residents would become owners. And we were trying to get them information about how they could get startup money to, to help do both of these ventures. They're in a food desert also. Mm -hmm. And so I would love to see, and maybe you can direct me and so I can direct others to this list of these 45 funds, <laughs> okay, 
Right. Yeah, well, the, the 45 funds themselves don't lend to anybody. Okay. Um, but they give to nonprofits in their communities. That's, that's what they do. If you're looking for people who, who you want to lend, you know, large sums of money to, then on the East Coast you need to approach the New England Cooperative Loan Fund, um, North Country Cooperative Fund out of uh, Minneapolis, uh, ICA Leaf Fund uh, out of Massachusetts. Um, those are the groups that are doing the lending to support the development of new cooperatives. And they, they all have fairly large amounts of capital available to do that. It's amazing how our conversation just leads into all kinds of different things now. We, right. We've gone from cooperative to the civil rights movement to to money and funds and so forth. And we have to take our second break. For everybody out there, if you want a question of David or myself, you can call in at 1-800-450-7876. Don't touch that dial. We'll be right back. Fourteen fifty WOL. Welcome back, everybody. This wonderful Thursday morning, we're talking to David Thompson out of Northern California, Davis, California, about cooperatives. Uh, he is a writer. Uh, he, David, what all do you call yourself? <laughs> what all do you do? <laughs> Entrepreneur, uh, investor. Well. Uh, I'm glad you asked me and not other people. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's a good question. I suppose in many ways I feel um, some kind of a duty and a responsibility to be uh, kind of a, uh, even though I'm an immigrant, a Johnny Appleseed of cooperatives. You know, that's uh, there, there are a number of us in the United States who you know, talk about cooperatives, promote cooperatives, figure out how to grow them, figure out how to develop them, figure out how to get them the resources. Um, it's a very important role that a number of us play, and I'm really proud to be a part of that group. And the National Cooperative Bank are just absolutely fabulous in doing all of this stuff with us. I think I've told you this about five years ago. Um, I figured out what I want to be when I grow up. Uh -huh. And that was to uh, promote co-ops. This is one of the things that we're doing with this show, uh, develop co-ops. And at first it was just housing co-ops. And the more I've learned in these two years that we've been on, I've increased that to developing any and all kinds. And maybe I'll just put down beside me a general, Johnny Appleseed of cooperatives, too. And then <laughs> it is to uh, – I want to help to start a either education institutions – like the Howard Universities where I taught or the Stanford's where I went to school at to either have a division on teaching co-ops and maybe as a cooperative MBA, a cooperative master's in business, business administration, or maybe to start a community college, but something that focuses in the U.S. on teaching about cooperatives. And then the fourth thing is to give money, and right, I had identified ICA and the Federation of Southern Co-ops as the two places that I could give money to. I've been blessed beyond my measure. So it's like, that's one of the things. So maybe now we can be <laughs> brothers uh, <laughs> in this Johnny Apple seed of cooperatives. So I'd like to talk about, a little bit about that. You say you're an immigrant. What do you mean by that? I think I know what you mean, but I want other people to know what you mean. Right. Well, um, I, I grew up in England um, and uh, emigrated to the United States um, in the 1980s. 
or was it? Yeah. No, it was the 60s, sorry. Okay. 19, 1962. Um, uh, and, and actually, I, 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 this is slightly off topic, topic but, but I raise it because, um, you know, there's so much talk about immigrants these days, and so much of it is not very, very appealing. It's quite um, negative uh, too often, too much, yeah. Right, right. And, and, and uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm always so funny to be amongst groups of people who then start going on about immigrants and what, how terrible immigrants are, and I'd have to say, hey, do you mind? I'm one of them, too. You know? mm-hmm. So, anyhow, I, I, I sort of raise it because I'm a little bit... Uh, I'm a little bit more um, sensitive about it these days because of the abuse that a lot of people are making of immigrants. Um, I know I've contributed far more to the United States than I've gotten from it, and I was damn glad to do that, and I'm very glad to return all of the favors that came along. But, um, I, you know, my, my gardener is an immigrant, you know, and, and the post guy delivering the mail is an immigrant. Um, you know, there's a lot of hardworking people. So I know it's off topic, but, um, I, well, you know, immigrants, uh, you know, we're, we're a good group of people. Well, I got to say to you, the reason I dislike a lot of the negative conversation about immigrants is because if you look at America's history, most all of us are. Okay? Our, our, when you look at our ancestry, we, we most all immigrated. And when I have traveled the world, most people want to come here because of our education system and our opportunity that you can change class from poor to middle class and maybe from middle class to rich. Right. In America, where in other countries it's much harder to do, in some cases perhaps even impossible. So that to me is why what makes the U.S. so great. But I'm glad you brought it up because that's also the reason I like co-ops is because it gives the everyday common person with an education, a formal education or, or without the opportunity to create uh, financial wealth. Right. And, you know, I mean, sort of tying it back into the immigrant thing, mm-hmm. um, there are huge amounts of cooperatives all around the United States that are mainly based um, amongst immigrant communities. Um, where the cooperative allows the different immigrant groups to come together, um, to put their capital together, to help each other, to build housing, to build small businesses. Um, there are various other things uh, that are going on, but there are, you know, house cleaning co-ops of um, Central American immigrants in San Francisco. Um, there are groups of Haitians that have formed immigrant uh, co-ops in, in, in Florida and uh, Puerto Ricans have done lots of immigrant co-ops. Uh, so the uh, the co-op um, has been a, a central element of a m- many of the immigrant groups that have come to America. And some of the great co-ops that we have, um, you know, came out of, you know, the Scandinavian immigrants, the Finnish, the, Scan- the Swedish, the Norwegians, Germans and others, uh, you know, who came to the Midwest and started farming together and, you know, knew as a single farmer they couldn't make it, but if they had a co-op, um, they would be able to have a, a, a stronger and better life, a better economic life. And, and so as a result, we, we have things like Land of Lakes that, you know, emerge from, from that era. It's amazing how whatever topic you want to bring up, it goes back into how working together as a group of people, put, pooling our skill sets, our our talents, our 
limited resources most often if you're talking about people that have no means. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, so if you pool this together uh, and a co-op is a model that would allow that and, and there's some education that goes along with this co-op thing. So, so that people can really, really come together and have a successful business and that the people in the community then rise. Everybody, that when the mm-hmm. tide r- rises, everybody in the boat rises. So, again, that's why I love this, this co-op model and want to be a Johnny Appleseed of cooperative. Right. Okay. okay. Well, I'll just uh, – one of the, uh, the stories I'll just quickly throw in because I just love it. In Bangladesh about 20 years ago um, – cell phones began to emerge, but no individual could afford a cell phone, you know, who lived in a little village in Bangladesh that was, you know, sort of a foot underwater. Um, And I heard this story about all of these cell phone cooperatives that began to emerge in Bangladesh, where a group in the village who were small business people who needed to make contact in the city, you know, to bring in the uh, agricultural products that they had, they formed a co-op. They bought a cell phone, and they used it amongst themselves to make their contacts with the uh, with the big cities, and off they went with their little trucks and all of that kind of thing. And I thought, what a wonderful idea. You know, you don't keep it to yourself, but share it amongst your friends, and you enter into the marketplace, and these little cooperatives began to, you know, do better and get better prices for the thing and have a better life for themselves. And I thought to myself, what a great, great idea. It's a fascinating, too, because right now in the U.S., it seems like everybody has a cell phone, no right. matter how much income they have or don't have. And right. their kids and their grandkids have cell phones. But mm-hmm. to think that people could not afford a cell phone in a village and then they came together to solve that problem. Yeah. No, it's a great story. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and there's one about Rochdale where um, groups of seven Men <laughs> would always be men uh, in those days, but they would form little cooperatives to buy a watch, you know, the hanging watch that people had. And each of the members had that watch one day a week. <laughs> 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 uh, and for one day a week, you know, they acted like, you know, they, they, they knew the time, they knew everything, you know, and, uh, you know, they were very proud of being part of this watch cooperative. <laughs> I guess you couldn't have any more than seven since you only have seven days in a week. That's right. I, I guess if, if you were if you had thirty, maybe you could do it one day a month. Okay. Yeah, those co-ops it didn't work. You know, if you only got it once a month, it just wasn't worth joining. You know. Anyhow, your show is great, Vernon, and I thank you so much for. Um, pursuing it and contributing your time and effort. Uh, it makes a lot of difference to uh, people, and you've given voice to people like myself and others, um, you know, through giving us time on your show. Uh, so I just want to, before the show ends, I, w- I want to thank you so very, very much for uh, what you have done. You know, thank you, David. I, I appreciate that. One of the things I've learned. Uh, I went to get the MBA at Stanford to make money. I mean, that was mm-hmm. to, to learn how to make money. And and then somewhere 10, 20 years later, I got that the more I tried to make more money, it seemed like the more I pushed it away. And so I just started saying, okay, do whatever you think is the right thing to do. That's, mm-hmm. If you think it's the right thing to do, then do it, and that will be your criteria. And coming out of that, it's just like it was amazing that money would show up um, when you just did the right thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and the other part of it is like doing this show, I have learned so much more than I've 
uh, maybe other people out there too, and giving, like you say, giving people a voice. But it's amazing how I, I've, it's gotten me into different places. Uh, it's gotten me to learn so much more. Uh, study the Pope. I, we, we're trying to get him on the show. Okay. <laughs> well, good. Okay. So there's no way I would have been reaching out to the Pope except that he likes co-op. He does. Yeah, yeah. he does. He loves them. Uh, and so I've reached out to President Obama and First Lady uh, Michelle Obama about being on it. I saw her in a – she was in California at a – I think a groundbreak, not a ground, uh, opening of a food co-op. I saw her picture, and I saw Hillary's picture somewhere in when she was uh, a Secretary of State, uh, that she was in some country – and they were opening up a co-op, and I saw her. Yeah, country. in Indonesia, she uh, she helped open up a, a new coffee cooperative. That's amazing what you know. Okay, I can remember the picture. <laughs> so I reached out to her, and I heard that Jeb Bush, trying to be politically sensitive here, <laughs> yep. went to an Italian prison uh, that had a co-op in it. And so I wanted to reach out to him. I haven't yet, but reach out to him to see if he would talk about his experience in that Italian prison. But it's also I went to Maryland to talk to people in the prison system to see if we could get some co-ops in their prison. Didn't get a favorable response, unfortunately, but that's not going to stop us. We'll keep trying to to see because the recidivism rate, that's the rate that people go back into prison. It had gone that where people were not in the co-ops in Italy, they were like 70% would return right. back. And if they were in the prisons, it was almost unmeasurable. It was like they said 1% of the people would come back mm. because they, if they worked in a co-op in, while they were in prison in a bakery. So they learned how they were an owner and they made uh, the same money they would have made outside. So they could have savings right. and they had a way for them to have savings. Right. So right. when they went right. out, they had a job. That's the hardest right. thing for them right. to get. Yeah. Not only did they have a job, they were a part of an owner. Right, right, right. Yeah, no, it's um, that that, uh, program in Italy has worked extremely well, and um, uh, they've also used it quite a lot with um, drug rehab centers, too. So they have uh, created many cooperatives in drug rehab centers and help people, you know, get themselves back into the mainstream of life. David Thompson, uh, if you want to reach out to him for his book on cooperative. Activity, cooperativity. Opportunity. Yep. <laughs> okay. Uh, you can reach him at D Tomp, T H O M P, co op at AOL. Dot com. Dot com. Okay. Uh, we're going to take our last break, David. It, the, the time goes by so quick, and I think I could talk to you for two or three hours. Well, now, I always enjoy chatting with you, and I'm just so appreciative of what you do as a result. So. Well, the 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 other, the the thing that, uh, as you know, uh, Pat Thornton is the developer, and what we're trying to not only do is that's not only just talk about it, but see if we can help get some started. This Johnny Appleseed piece, and there is a lady, Irma Wilburn. Oh yeah, right, 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 right. Albany, New uh, Georgia. Uh, she's got ten ladies, herself and nine others, that's starting a bakery there. Oh, good. Uh, and that, that's just fascinating when she talks about their four counties that these ladies come from, and they're they're coming together, and there's some community kitchen they're going to be able to use. So it's just fascinating what people can do as they come together. So I've been working with them 
mainly my part is on the business plan and trying to help them get the co-op uh, technolo technology uh, information from either U.S. Federation or right there in the Federation of Southern Co-ops so they could get that thing started and going. And I told him I want to I want to get paid in bread, bakery goods, <laughs> donate some bread to me. We'll be right back. Please don't touch that dial. We'll have another 15 minutes with David. I'm sure it will be excited because I enjoy talking to him so much. Don't touch the dial. 1450 WOL. Information is power. That's why WOL is a great uh, partner to have this show because we're giving you information that if you use it, you can have power. Um, power to solve your community problems, whatever they might be, including not having enough jobs. You can help to create jobs by uh, creating worker-owned co-ops, which are called worker co-ops, uh, to solve whatever whatever community problem you might have. David, let's go back to co-opportunity. You, you have said it's one of the largest food co-ops in terms of sales. Well, no, it's uh, by sales. It's the uh, the largest sales per square foot of any food store oh, per in square America. foot. Okay. Yeah, of any food store in America. Okay, because at first I thought you said it was the largest in square foot. I thought I didn't understand. No, you. no, 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 no. It's a very. <laughs> it's yeah. only about a. Yeah, I don't know. Probably about a twelve to fourteen thousand square foot building altogether. Okay. Why? Why are they able to sell so much? With 11,000 members? Yeah, yeah, 11,000. Why are they able to sell so much? Mm -hmm. uh, <laughs> well, you know, Santa Monica is um, a good place to live. I certainly lived there for quite a while and enjoyed it immensely. Um, I lived there know, for four months once. I was doing some consulting out there, and I lived in Santa Monica. It's a wonderful place to live. I would, oh, yeah, if yeah. If you could afford yeah. it. <laughs> right, yeah, if you could afford it, right. <laughs> But, um, you know, it, um, Santa Monica has always had a very uh, progressive uh, element to it for the past um, 30, 40 years. And, uh, you know, people eat well and look after themselves, things like that. But um, there's, a, there's a lot of competition. There's uh, two or three Whole Foods there. There's a couple of Trader Joe's. There's all sorts of other uh, stores around. But um, Co-Opportunity is the only locally owned natural foods retailer in Santa Monica uh, actually, uh, you know, d does a good job of, uh, of having that as its moniker, as you might say, um, mm -hmm. employs um, over 100 people. And um, they uh, they just grew and grew and grew. And, you know, their dilemma is it, it's so difficult to find property in Santa Monica at a, at a reasonable rate that um, they have not been able to grow because they they just don't have the millions to go off and buy a piece of real estate, you know. so That's the affording part of Santa Monica is the real estate. Right, right, right. Uh, David. It's a food co-op, and with 11,000 members, I would think it's a consumer co-op. And a consumer co-op, for those of you out there, is when the people that buy the, the products or the services own the business. So this is a consumer co-op, right? Because food co-ops could be either right. a worker co-op or a consumer co-op. Right, yeah, they can be either, yeah. Uh, but this is a consumer cooperative, and um, it's uh, probably, probably the third largest in California. So if you have a consumer cooperative, the focus in the people that own the business, they will vote for the board of directors. Correct. And the board of directors then create policies and they hire management and they 
they make sure management is doing their job. But their focus then is on the consumer needs, on the people that buy the products. Right. So what I get for food co-ops is then they do things that the consumer wants it done, no matter you know, what that is. If they can afford to do it, they can do it. And can you tell some of the things that, that food co-ops and maybe co-opportunity have done? For instance, one of the things I heard that they, they put what was included in their food long before it was, you know, on the packaging, on the label, long before it was law to do that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, you know, um, co-opportunity like uh, like about another 130, 140 other food cooperatives around the country are part of the National Cooperative Grocers Group. And uh, that group um, works with all of its member co-ops around the country to, um, you know, get the best quality products that are available in co-ops to have the most ethical products to um, have products that, you know, pay a great deal of attention to the environment. Um, food cooperatives like Co-Opportunity are um, very much involved in responding to the needs of their local community. They buy more from local farmers uh, because of that commitment. Um, they give more money back to uh, local organizations than people like Whole Foods do. There's just um, you know a whole range of things that um, food cooperatives do. Uh, in their communities because they are owned by the members who are the same people that live in those communities, and they are committed to, you know, getting better health for people in the community, better food, better qualities, et cetera, et cetera. You know, their their interest is in serving the needs of their members. They're, they're, they are not there, you know, solely for profit, although being a profitable cooperative is uh, is always a good idea because you have much even more to share with your members because – cooperatives will then share their profits with their members. Well, I had come to understanding a long time ago, 30 years ago, that if you're a nonprofit or for-profit company, you have to have profits, whether it's called surplus or whether it's called profit or whatever you call it. You have to have more coming in than going out. If you have it the other way around, you won't be in business long. You have more going out than coming in. Right. And, right. and also you need surplus monies to fund a growth or to fund uh, – Research, uh, where you say I want to do the best I can for my for my members, then what is that? What do the members want? They have surveys, or what do they need, and how do you produce that? How do you create packaging that will tell people what it is that's in there in a, in a way that educate them about what's in there? So yeah, you have to make money. There's no question about it, no right. matter what you call yeah. yourself. Yeah. Well, I I say money is the root of all good. Um, it's just evil people that do the wrong things with it. Ah. <laughs> I love it. I love it. <laughs> I love it. So, so money is the root of all good. It's yeah. The evil people that do bad things with it or to get it. Right. With it. Now, see, I consider greed is not a bad thing by itself. But when you hurt people, do evil things to people to get money, then that's what makes money bad to me. Right, right. Well, I'm, I'm just, um, you know, almost all of my life I've spent in cooperatives. I have um, had a, a real keen focus on um, access to capital because, uh, you know, the range of uh, new cooperatives that are emerging at this time is the biggest wave we probably ever had. But one of the biggest drawbacks to those cooperatives actually getting into business or getting into business on a, on a timely manner 
uh, is always capital. That is the one thing that is such a laggard um, to us who are developing cooperatives. So um, we've got to pay much more attention to capital. It is our best friend. It is what we need. We do have it in the pockets of our members, um, and the co-op needs it to, you know, to do its growth and to open up and to de to develop. So um, there's, there's, there's always been an element in the co-op world that dislikes capital and thinks that it's terrible and you shouldn't use it and all that kind of thing. But I, I feel completely the opposite. It's like a, it's a tool. Um, having it makes our cooperative stronger and better and more effective and more um, able to serve people. So, you know, let, let's, let's get over the capital problem and let's get some in our co-ops and do the things we want to do. Well, I totally agree with you. Um, Leland Stanford, who started Stanford University, was oh, a yeah. senator, and he uh -huh. created laws for worker cooperatives. They didn't pass he the did. Senate. But right. it was interesting that he had made his money as a railroad baron, but he was against capitalism now, and he wanted to get rid of capitalism for cooperatism, from what I've read. And I was against that, too. You need capital, and you need you need labor and capital. You need both of them, and if you can get them to work harmoniously together, then that that would be the best of all worlds. If people and with with money, you need both. David, I want to change the subject a minute here uh, on education. I was at a function in my hometown in Bluefield, and the, the person that spoke is a is a famous artist, and unfortunately, I don't remember her name right now. But she said she was dyslexic, and I was amazed to find out how much formal education you have. You mind telling us how much formal education you have? Well, um, I had a bit of a different journey, which is um, I, I actually left home and, sco uh, and school in England when I was 15, and I ran away to London and uh, got a job in a hotel and lived in a hostel. So that, that was how life began for me, and it wasn't until I was in the United States, I, I was about 27, that I saw that in the United States, uh, an education is a very critical part of, you know, success or not success and mm -hmm. whether people will listen to you and all of that. So um, I went back to uh, junior college and uh, then um, got my AA degree and applied to UCLA. And then I wasn't allowed into UCLA because I didn't have a high school degree. So I had to go back and get a high school degree at 29 years of age. <laughs> and then I got into UCLA, but I ended up with, an, with a BA in sociology and an MA in architecture and urban planning. So I just wanted to tell people out there that it doesn't make any difference what the problem is or how old you are. You can always go get that education. And what I like about co-ops, even if you don't have a formal education, you can get the knowledge you need by working together. And this is what I see cooperatives, cooperators do. Education is critical. And you found it out and went back at a, as an old man. <laughs> yes, I did indeed. I did indeed. Uh, you, we're we're up out of time, Dave. <laughs> sorry. I would like oh, to damn, Let's do it next year. Okay, <laughs> we're on for it. Thank you so much for being on, David. And I'm glad that we have a chance to talk. Uh, I do want to maybe come out to talk to you, or we'll see how we can do it. But thanks so very much, and we'll be back with everybody for next Thursday. Right, and I thank you, Vernon, and thank Pat also. Uh, okay. Bless, bless you for the work you do. Thanks, sir. All, All right, right, mate. Bye. Bye now. 1450 WOL.